All right, here we are. Here we are. Welcome back and welcome to 2024. Look at us. It's a brand new year. Look at us. Yeah, look at us. 2024. We made it. I know. Looks like we made it. Hey, I had a I was thinking about something this this morning, and <laughs> were I, you? That's I was dangerous. I bet it's dangerous, and I thought I'd, I'd pose this to you because I I don't know the the actual answer. So, whenever you encounter like like media, and I'm going to use that term mm. media, mm. like books or movies in which there's some sort of chronology, okay, okay. So, yep. do you go at them? Do you you know digest them, read them, watch them? In the order they came out, mm. or this sounds like a Star in, Wars question. Well, it's not just a Star Wars question. I know, but, but it, I mean, it, Star Wars is an example, but it's not the only example. I mean, it's not really. That's I'm not really thinking about it from the Star Wars standpoint. I was thinking about it from. And I've been reading, you know, a lot of books in 2023, and I read the Jack Reacher series, a, a lot of them. Right, and they're not. Like there's an order of like when they came out and then there's an order of where they are in Jack Reacher's life. And so they're all over the place, like uh, one, two. So and I've read them in the order that they come out. But sure. then I was talking recently to a, another friend of mine who's a big Jack Reacher fan who reads them in the order that they show up in his life. Right. Yeah. Which is hard because yeah. what if a new one comes out tomorrow? Right. right? It's from <laughs> baby like, Jack Reacher when he was yeah. a teenager. And then what do you well, do? they have you those. They have those books where he's a teenager. Of course they do. I know of you course, probably heard that. Of course they do. No. So then he rereads the whole series again with this new information. I don't know. I don't know what he does. I mean, That's I think he just sees it as like, okay, this is where it is right now. I'm going to read it from the order. Yeah, know. this this it's is like, like the Marvel. Marvel's a big one for this. Yeah. Right? The continuity. Yes. Yeah, but they, now they've just turned everything into multiverse, so there's no continuity anyway. So it's yeah, like, okay. or Star Wars, like it's like you got to watch, you know, yeah, you got to watch the the movie in the order they've come out or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. All right, but that's not the point of today's podcast. It's not. not. It was. No. It was as as per usual on this show. We started with a digression, an immediate yes. digression <laughs> into like totally unrelated nonsense. I am going to I'm going to be uh, really interested in the numbers from last week's episode which was the show before the show where we yeah. just recorded our nonsense. Yes. Well, or you know, if you have feedback for us, please send us <laughs> an email and say, "Yes, we love this. Do more of it or for the love no. of God, please never yeah, do stop. that again because that was more it's bad enough when you do it in the regular episodes and now there was a whole episode of it. It's just a waste of our time." Yeah. So, yeah. so that's yeah, not, yeah. not what we have we're a topic. Here to talk about. Yeah, we have a topic, and it's a, and after that intro, it's a, a relatively serious topic, I guess. So maybe, yeah. maybe that was a good counterbalance, a little, uh, you know, a little uh, balancing things out. Yeah, you know, a starter of stupidity followed by an entree of <laughs> uh, serious. Well, I don't know. I don't know if it's serious or not, but it's something I've been thinking about. So, um. Probably in a future episode, maybe next episode, we're going to talk about um, uh, the Adam Grant podcast or an episode of that 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 uh, that we both listened to. But in the feed um, right after that was was another podcast, another <laughs> episode of Work Life with Adam Grant. And I listened to that one and it was with um, Elliot Aronson, who's a who's a, a famous psychologist who did a lot of his work around cognitive dissonance. 
Um, and that's what he's famous for. Uh, but what I, what he did in that episode was name something that I've been thinking about. So, um, or put a name to something that I've been thinking about and trying to figure out. So, so I'm going to introduce that and talk about it a little bit. And then, um, I'm going to talk about the concept before we name it. Um, but one of the things I noticed, uh, you know, we're, we're living in, um, Interesting times. Polarizing. Is that, is Polarizing. That to say? Polarized times. Yeah. Um, and there's, yeah. you know, so um, I've been thinking about that, but I've also been thinking about it on a sort of micro level, because one of the things I notice, you know, now as, as a leader, as a department leader is um, I'm much more aware than I was before, I think, of the way that people talk about each other in academia. Um, and mm-hmm. so one of the things I've been noticing is, um, is there were, there are, you know, divides and we know this from when we were K-12 teachers, right? If you're, if you're a K-12 teacher, it's very likely that you were in a unionized environment, right? So I sure. certainly was. And, and that historically has put people into different groups, right? So if you're a teacher, labor you're a teacher, right? management, exactly. Yep. Labor and management, and so that same um, that same pattern plays out in academia. So there's faculty, and then there's administration or leadership. Um, and so I, I've just been, um, you know, all all through this semester as a new department head, I've been sort of aware of how people deploy those terms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I found it interesting and a little bit um i don't know challenging right that that uh it's easy to use um terms like that when you are uh wishing to say something that is let's say unkind or um not supportive about people yeah. um because it it uh it dehumanizes them right so well i is it where do you fit in that sort of like divide, not in terms of like your opinion yeah. of the divide, but no. you now serve as a chair now at yeah. at a Millersville, head, a head, actually, a depart- which... yeah, a head. Uh, in our in our uh, in our environment, we're unionized, so we have a faculty uh, union, and our department chairs are still faculty, and so they're not viewed. They may be viewed as leaders, but they're not viewed as them. They're still mm-hmm. us, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. I'm using that term "us" and "them" because I think it fits into your, you know, the topic of today's conversation is yeah, sure. we. And I'm very involved in our faculty union, both locally and statewide. So I, I think I've mentioned this in mm-hmm. previous episodes, but I'll say it again. I'm currently the vice president for our uh, our union. And so that means that in two years, I will actually a year and a half or so, I will be the president of our local chapter. And with that, that will mean that I will take on different roles at at, uh, at the state level too. I'm at, like on the mobilization committee. If you know there was some sort of work stoppage or work action that we would have to take, mm-hmm. I serve on a bunch of different you know roles with uh, legislative assembly, which is this big statewide thing. And whenever we get together at the state level and also locally – there and this is one of the things that really bothers me is that use of terminology, the language we use to talk about the other, the mm-hmm. other group. And mm-hmm. when you propose this as a possible topic, 
that's as instantly where I went. When, yeah. Like instantly, you were like outgroup dehumanization. And I was like, oh, us versus them in terms of what we do as faculty. Cause, and it's to me where, where it's the most insidious is when we start to talk about them ethically mm-hmm. because they're like unethical, even though they're making decisions yeah. with different information than we do, right? Um, yeah. And the other part is how – we always paint them as being uh, less than, less than able, right? They're not mm. as smart as us. They're not as capable of us. But even though almost every single administrator in higher ed was a faculty member at some point. Yeah. yeah. So they all have all been us mm-hmm. and then moved up and then decided at some point, you know what? I want to be a head or a chair. And then next thing you know, they're the dean. And next thing they're them. Yep. That's an interesting trajectory. And as yeah. soon as they become them, now they're unethical, <laughs> not yeah. as intelligent. Right. They're, you know, all of that. Uncaring, unresponsive. Uncaring. Yes, all of it. Right. Like, which yeah, is so no, strange. I mean, uh, th- so this is what what started this thinking for me was my transition where basically on June 30, I was just Scott and some other guy, faculty dude. And then as of July 1st, when I became department head, I became this entirely different creature, right? Like, A, I was expected to know everything about all aspects of the department and everybody's individual works because they come to me and say, oh, you know, I have to do X, Y, Z because of this. And, and, I, and, and they would say it to me as if I understood and knew this a priori, right? That this was something that was known, like, oh, I teach in this special program, and that means I have X, Y, and Z responsibilities, and I get released from this, that, and the other, and you know, stuff like that. Um, and why don't you know that? Right. Clearly, you don't know that because you don't care, and right. you're unethical, and whatever, dot, dot, dot. You're not, not transparent. I mean, that's another one that you get, right. which is like, oh, there's decisions being made, and you're not being transparent, and – um. Yeah, so I think it's just been a real struggle for me and and the and the way that that's framed is rarely Scott is doing X, right? Scott is not being transparent. It is the leadership or mm. the department or and and so this idea that when people say that they're insulating themselves from making a direct attack on some individual like you you make it this sort of amorphous blob of like administrative dark force that you are in opposition to and that we as faculty have to join together to fight against. Um, and it, yeah, it is, it's, it's been, um, it's been really interesting, but I will say the reverse happens too. Like that's the other thing is now I'm in all these conversations with other leaders and administrators, department heads and associate deans and, and deans and so on. Um, and they talk often in the same way about faculty, sometimes in bins like junior faculty or senior faculty or faculty of color or, you know, there's whatever bucket they're talking about, but they don't talk about specific faculty. They, they group them into big buckets, right? And like lists, I am not fan of buckets because buckets rarely capture the nuance and complexity of this stuff. And so to answer your question about where I fit in this, I have no idea, actually. (laughs) I know that many people 
in your the bucket faculty. list. Yeah, people are putting you in a bucket. List. Whether you, uh, well, yeah, you're yeah. you are in a bucket, whether you want to be or not. It's just, right. But I think people put me in different du- buckets depending or, on who they are. Right. And and by that I mean even faculty. Like some faculty see me as a faculty member who's just serving in a new role, and some people see me as uh, an administrator. And and with that, there's all sorts of assumptions about what I do, what I know, what power I have, what what influence or ability to make decisions I have. So do you think being put in a bucket? So I think let's let's talk about that first. Let's talk about being okay. put into a bucket. And then That's we'll talk about to the, just to be careful or or impo- like you talked about I didn't actually name it, but you did. Yep. Which is this idea of uh, outgroup dehumanization, which is to say you are in a group, somebody else is in another group, and you then dehumanize that whole group. So yeah. now, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I think that the grouping is the bucket, right? Like you're being put 100%. into a bucket. Yeah. And so depending on who is putting you in a bucket, it's going to be like you could be in one bucket, hey, your administration, or from another, your faculty. And I think yeah. that for me – you know, I've been in higher ed. This is what, 15, 16 years for me. And then I was, this is my 32nd year in, in public education. Some people really do it well to navigate and and they may be in a bucket, but they don't carry the, I don't know, they, they don't get like dehumanized because they are seen as being somebody who is, has honor or somebody that's straightforward or somebody who isn't I'm, I'm going to use the air quotes playing the game, mm. right? Yeah. They're still yeah. involved. They're still faculty or they're still administration, but they're just like, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to. And I, I think the, for me, the perfect example to me is somebody actually who's worked with both of us and, or both of our institutions. I don't know how closely you work with them at Penn state is one of my favorite colleagues of all times is uh, a man by the name of Jeff Adams. And Jeff mm, Adams yeah. was our associate provost at Millersville and left to take a, a vice president position at mm-hmm. Penn State, which was a tremendous yep. loss for our institution and a tremendous gain for yours. He is one of these people who, through all of our interactions, and I interacted with him for probably five to seven years, was all rose above that, always mm. – just rose above putting people in buckets, like doing anything to really dehumanize. And I think what's I, I think is interesting is Canadian. He's Canadian. I yeah. think it might be that might be it. There you go. Well, be. I don't, I don't, I don't know if it is or not. To, but I, to put I, him in a I, different bucket, right? <laughs> <laughs> and there he is, putting in a put, putting the guy. Because all Canadians are good people. <laughs> yes. Nice work. That's great. But I think that his traits like his straightforwardness his transparency his honesty like mm-hmm. was just something that no matter what what perspective and i think he was pretty much universally respected by people at, at millersville like no one had a bad thing to say about him now i don't know how he navigates the stuff in a much different environment at, at sure. penn state but at millersville that that dude's universally loved and and respected yeah. and i think it he was somebody who was able to maybe be in a bucket, but didn't like really carry that, you know, the weight. He wasn't ever dehumanized. Right. Well, I, I hope that's true. I mean, I 
you know, this is a massive institution. I do see Jeff occasionally. I have, I have seen him now. I see him now more than I used to because we go to the same, sometimes the same kinds of events because we're in the same bucket. We're leaders right, in, nice. in some form or another. So um, I, I, my sense is that that's true. I mean, all my interactions with him have been the same as they've been with, you know, with your interactions with him. And I assume that he's, he's a man of integrity and that he's the same person. Oh, no doubt. Yes. Yeah. There. Um, but I, but that you know that exactly exemplifies this problem, right? Is that even if he is able to rise above the bucket in his individual interactions with people, he's still in the bucket, yeah. right? And so, and and there are people, mostly probably people who have had little to no interactions with him, who probably put him very much in the bucket and dehumanize him, right? And right. and say, oh well, if if that person would just stop making all these dumb decisions, then we'd be much better off. And, you know, that's the other thing that, that goes with that in an academic environment is, you know, especially big academic environments, but I'm sure it's true at all academic environments, maybe all environments, is the person that's making a decision, so me, let's say, there, there are assumptions about what I know and do not know made mm-hmm. by people who are not me, Right. And then based on that, they decide whether I am a person of integrity or not. Right. So it's not so much. Do I behave with integrity? Do I try my best to rise above and not be in the bucket and be a transparent and thoughtful and responsive communicator of my decision making and and all that? But the the perception of that is what ends up actually mattering. And that's really difficult, right? Because managing other people's perceptions of you is very difficult, especially going back to the example of Jeff, if the people that are doing that are are rarely interacting with you. So if they interact with you very infrequently, um, it's very easy to just use the bucket as the way it's, it's like, there's another uh, metaphor that I've heard for this, which is like your note card. Like I have a note card about that guy, which is to say I have one or two things that I know about them. And so using that as a way to frame what kind of decisions they make, like this very superficial understanding of other people. And then you take that and say, Oh, I know why they did that because they're X or because they don't care about Y or because, you know, Mm. and, and that I think is, um, is a real challenge to, I don't know, success, productive, responsive uh, cultures of learning. Like, if that's the how about way just joy? How about just the well, joy yeah. of our yeah, of our work? Like the joy that we find in our work. Yeah. Because whenever your integrity is called into question, whenever your, um, you know, just all of who you see, like your identity as a professional. Yeah, because you can be have this identity of I am this really caring teacher. Yeah, I'm a, an educator who gets so much out of my students and change their perspectives on the world around them. And then next thing you know, you are a leader, and your identity is now changed. And so much of that identity is not controlled by your actions, but people's mm-hmm. interpretations. Of of who you are, sometimes based on very limited interactions. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. and, you know, your point is well taken in that you can map this right into a classroom, right, in terms of yeah. how kids respond to teachers, right? Mm-hmm. So there, there is a sense that students um, – there's not a sense – 
students do this same thing with their teachers and teachers do this same thing with their students, right? Mm -hmm. Which is to say, making judgments about them and their motivations and their choices and their actions based often on very little information. Um, and you, you hear that, you can hear that same sort of, uh, outgroup dehumanization happening with teachers when they describe like whole classes in certain ways. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, and when kids describe teachers, I mean, it, you know, it, it, it's such a blessing and a curse that humans are good at grouping things by their similarities, right? Cause it's an incredibly powerful, useful thing. It lets us find patterns in the world, which is what science is all about. And it's super important that we as humans are able to not just live in the world, but actually see patterns and identify them and then articulate them to other people. And also those patterns are not true. They are not yeah. real. They are patterns that we have identified and we made up, but then we start acting as if they are real. So I know this is a theme of the show, but this is it. Like this is this is what happens in this outgroup dehumanization as well. Is what we do is we say, oh, all people who are leaders behave in X way, and all people who are faculty behave in Y way, and now we have we have this dehumanization of other people. We but say it, those it's... people always behave that way. I think the grouping part is is step one in the dehumanization. I don't really yeah. know the psychology behind this, but you know, I'm just playing it out in my head. So one is the grouping, like seeing that there's a there's an us and then them, or us and several thems. Right? If you're yeah, walking into a classroom, lots of thems. Yeah. Lots of thems. But I think the next part to me is that how we describe them. Mm -hmm. Right. The language we use to describe those other people and the traits and qualities of them mm -hmm. is the next step. And I think – and I don't know. This is probably – I think I might have read this in a Brene Brown book or something. We talked a little bit about that before the show. Yeah. But I think that you know, from her perspective, like it starts with language, like dehumanizing. And I think that's a theme that she talks about or has talked about um, in some of her books. But um, – it starts with language, like how we describe those people, whether we're talking about them as lacking transparency or lacking, you know, any sort of ethical compass or whatever, mm -hmm. or being not as bright, not as intelligent or lacking motivation or whatever, or more insidious. Like these people are like, and you see this playing out politically, like those people are evil. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think they're, depending on who side, whatever side you're on, like the other side is evil in some way. Sure. Absolutely. Like well, we're, and we're like to some, like I, I, I think I read this someplace where like we're the villain in somebody else's book. Right. Yeah. Well, for those of you who are stations 11 fans, which if you're not, you should be um, that there's a line from there, like to the monsters, we're the monsters. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's fundamentally true. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure the directionality you described is necessarily the case because I think sometimes we develop, we we use an individual to develop both not very nice language and potentially nice language sometimes too. But then that is followed by bucketing them, right? And and certainly the the uh, elephant in the room here that is maybe obvious to everybody is this is also race this is also gender yeah. this is also sexuality this is also you know pick your your isms that are floating around in the world and 
these are they are the direct result of outgroup dehumanization, right? To say, oh, if you're not straight, you're evil, right? Well, that's a that's an outgroup dehumanization in the same way that all these other ones are. So this idea that that it's bounded in some narrow area is is you know not true, but but it's interesting to me that people who are thoughtful about about race and about equity and about diversity and belonging and all the things that we talk about and and say that we care about, um, which and I think do care about many of us, um, are also perfectly willing to use uh, deploy outgroup dehumanization when it comes to the role that you're in. Right. So it's like, well, that's interesting. Like you don't want to be bucketed by race, but you're perfectly happy to be bucketed by role as if that is a legitimate way to um, to to dehumanize someone. I I didn't think I'd be quoting Paulo Freire today. I don't oh, know if I pronounce that, but goodness. it's like whose side are you on? Right? That's it. You're either on the side of the oppressor or the oppressed. And if you are not, isn't that kind of like, isn't that it? Yeah, yeah it is. Sorry. I, when you shook your head, I thought you were like, yeah. <laughs> like I, I figured I mangled his word, his name. No, no, you know? you're doing great. You, All right. Yeah, awesome. Sorry. But, um, but if you're standing, if you're not attacking the oppressor, yeah. then you're on their side. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that sometimes whenever, uh, People are standing up for whatever you know group out group that they're that they're part of or not part of or you know you know one of I'm I'm kind of mangling a bit but mm-hmm. like if they're an activist for some group mm-hmm. that they are going to stand against whatever uh, that other group is who's holding them down right or mm-hmm. whoever they perceive as holding them down sure yeah yeah I mean this right. And that, and that, I mean, yeah, we're right in the heart of it now, right? I mean, which yeah. is, this is this is fu- f- the fundamental tension of of human nature, which is grouping things and being part of a group is important to us psychologically. Like we talk about again, this like individual psychology is useful, but what we really are, are social animals, right? Yeah. Our, our individual cognition developed in the context of social groups, and therefore is dependent on it. So, um, so we need a social group and we have to identify, this is McRaney's stuff about how minds change, right? Like you, the biggest problem for people to change their mind is they have to have a new group that identifies with their new way of thinking, because if they don't, then they feel alone and they won't leave their existing group. No matter how crazy they think the ideas of that group are, they won't leave unless they know they have a safe place to go to socially. So this is the, this is the tension that we live in is, um, how do we think about dismantling some of this stuff, but recognizing that it's so fundamental to our psychology that it's difficult to completely dis? I mean, we'll we'll never be able to get to the point where we can say um, there's no such thing as an out group. Everybody's in an in group, like, and that's you know, on on some level, that's the the gold standard that we always hope for. This utopian vision of everyone treats everyone as individuals and cares about them and wants the best for all of us. Um, and part of the reason that doesn't work is we necessarily need in groups and therefore we necessarily have out groups. So the question is, how do we deal with that in a way that allows us to go forward and not, not turn everything into a war, right? You yeah. know, 
because that's what ends up happening politically in, in so many ways, but also just on the smaller scale of like sports and like so many things where we're willing to demonize the other side of, of some often trivial battle, right? You know, like it's, it's really fascinating how, um, how that happens. So how are you navigating it? Like, how are you navigating being put in this bucket that, and, and getting, cause I, I'll, I'll, I just, as we're talking about this, I was thinking about like, maybe, I don't know, about a decade ago, we had, uh, some, some challenges on campus where we had some really large classes yeah. and our Dean at the time got some people from different departments to work, to help faculty navigate that. And so we were like given this role as Dean's assistants to go off and, oh. and help. Right. And so we were, in a bucket. we were put in a bucket, we were given a title and it was me and just a couple other faculty members in our, in our, uh, our college and our, my department reacted so neg- negatively to me that mm-hmm. one person said I was like one of the people who were putting the like and this was in a meeting said I was like people putting you know Jews on the train to take them to the Holocaust use oh. that specific language to talk about like talk about de- outgroup dehumanization right exactly so here was you know maybe a day or two or a week before I was one of them and as soon as that you know, role changed. I now became this, this evil monster. Right. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, that's a really unfortunate example, an extreme case, but yeah, I think, I think those things are happening all the time. I mean, part of the, part of our pre-show, I was talking about the fact that this is the time of year that we have to cancel under-enrolled courses. Yeah. And, and for those of you who don't know what that means, basically when we spin up a course at any university, there's a minimum enrollment for that course. Um, so let's say if it's an undergraduate course for us at the 100 to 300 level, that has to be a minimum of 15 students. So if it's below 15 students, it's considered underenrolled. And the response to that is meant to be cancel the course. Like if it's underenrolled, you can't run the course. Now, there are exceptions to that, of course, because because rules shouldn't be ironclad in any system. But this leads to all sorts of confusion and ambigu- uh, ambiguity and, and often leads to people like me getting blamed for things like right. courses getting canceled because I'm the one doing it. It's like, well, am I the one doing it? Because it doesn't feel like I'm the one doing it, but I guess I'm the one doing it. But now that I'm doing it, now they they get angry with me. They get frustrated. They're like, why are you doing this to us? This is an important course. It's part of a thing. Or, And I I agree with them. It is an important thing. And I say, yes, you are correct. I, gr- I agree. It is an important thing. And and it also and, has to be canceled. Or and there's only 12 be, students. Right. Yeah. There's only 12 students in the class. Right. But, but from that faculty member's perspective, they may know somebody else whose class isn't being canceled because Correct. you know all of the other information right. that that individual doesn't. Like maybe this is a class that's only offered once every two years in a cycle. And so yep. if the students don't get that class, they may not take that class again while they're at Penn State. Yeah. And so you have information that you were able to go to your dean or go to whoever and say, hey, this class has to stay in the books because we're not going to be able to offer it for another two years. And there's only a handful of people in the major who need this class. So right. you've just made this. But 
that's the information that you have that somebody else doesn't. And now they're looking at you without that information and saying, oh, Scott, Scott, it was Scott's call. Scott's doing backroom deals and Scott's giving special exceptions and Scott's doing whatever, right? Yeah. And Scott is evil. Yep. And and there's the transition and there's the dehumanization. And that's the thing, right? It does happen and it happens quickly. Um, And again, I understand it. But but the challenge is like one of the only ways to combat that, as far as I can tell, is um, and this this is going to be for another show. We can't talk about this part (laughs) of it. But but the the challenge to that is the only way to combat that is to be to going back to the no card analogy to have more than a no card to actually interact with more people in more meaningful ways to be in community together. Because then you know people and you're like, oh, Scott would not do that. There must be some reason that that decision was made that is not because he's being capricious or doesn't care about me or cares more about that other person than cares about me or whatever. But that only happens if people are in community and know each other and know that that's the way that person is. But if not, and increasingly, especially post-pandemic, we're not in those kinds of high, high touch environments i guess is the way to describe it like where you're actually in int- like physical oh i bump into the hall there's ollie oh i haven't seen you how was your weekend like though if we're not doing that because everybody's on zoom or only coming to campus when they have to that makes all that stuff a lot harder yeah that if you haven't spent time on campuses it's a different place yeah. than it was pre-pandemic there people were coming there were always people who came to campus you know just a handful of days a week because of you know we have some commuters on on our campus that commute from a great distance to 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 work at Millersville but it is very different now because we we have a lot of people who are just like you know what I'm going to do this through Zoom I'll be oh it's a big meeting day I'm just can we offer that through Zoom and I understand yeah. that there are lots of uh, value added for people by being able to do this, to be able to talk through, uh, uh, through zoom and interact through zoom, but there's also so much stuff lost. Mm -hmm. And as, um, as institutions, as, as groups, we have to consider like that we have to consider that math. And I think sometimes the, the things lost are pretty significant. Yeah. But, you know, again, going back to the fundamental problem, that's what. And so then if I as a leader say, look, the solution to this problem or a thing that will help this problem is if everyone can be can come to campus and be with us and talk like then it sounds like I'm mandating people to come to campus. And now I sound like a them again. Because it's yes. like, well, wait, so I can't do my writing day at home. I have to come to campus now because I have to b- do something for the good of the department. And now it's the department, right? I've I've dehumanized it. It's not some person or, or even my group of people, right? It's this the department or the institution. And again, it's not that I don't get it. I understand why it, that feels that way and why people would be resistant to it. But I also think... It, unexamined that is a really dangerous way of thinking about who we are as human beings much less as scholars and faculty and teachers and all the other roles that we play but if we're if we're willing to think about the world that way i think that may, that that hurts us right it hurts us to to view other people that way because it, it you know 
um, what is it? Comparison is the death of joy, right? This, this, you know, I've never pure, heard that before. Oh yeah. That's a good one too. Right. But you know, you're, you're talking about joy in our work. And if we're constantly saying, oh, that person works less than me, or that person gets away with more stuff than me or whatever it is, like where you're comparing your, your experience to someone else's based on your superficial, like, veneer of understanding of what their life is and then saying, well, it's not fair. And then the next step is dehumanizing that person to say, well, because they're special now I get to, to essentially, as you said, call them evil or at least bad or mean or whatever. Yeah. So how, how are you doing with this? Are you, that was a question I asked you a few minutes ago. Yeah. I mean, I think you've heard how I'm doing with it. I'm struggling with it mightily. Right. I'm really trying to figure out um, how to how to manage this and how much has to be um, explicitly like how much do I explicitly need to say to faculty in some sort of public venue? Like, I don't know if you realize or understand what's happening, but here's what I'm seeing as a brand new department head. Here is what I am seeing as I transition from June 30 to July 1 is um is my perception of how you all now perceive me and how you all respond to things that I do. Right. And, and you know, that they don't have to believe me and they can also think that this is some sort of ploy to get them to, I don't know what, do what I say or feel pity for me so that they'll be more likely to, to submit to my will or whatever it is that their vision is. But, um, but yeah, I'm struggling with it a lot because it. Um, I don't think as a faculty member, I treated leadership slash department head, deans, associate like I. I endeavor in my life to treat people as they are and and to try and respect and understand that I don't know enough about them to make hard judgments about whether they are good or bad people based on this small number of interactions I have with them. But do I, am I perfect at that? Absolutely not. I'm sure I'm not. Um, and does that come across? I don't know. But that's that's my goal. Well, I wonder for you, one of the reasons why it's so hard or why you're, it's it's navigating, besides the fact that this is being done to you. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Is the fact that you've spent the last, I don't know, 16, 17 years or longer in this community yeah, and had funny. this had this identity mm-hmm. and you've developed this identity through your research through your teaching through the different ways you've served the community and now because you've taken on some additional responsibilities and you were asked to do it right? you mm-hmm. were asked to kind of like hey take this take on this job for this year hey do us a favor you're widely respected you're somebody who has you know the standing and now you put this role with all these people that you have these developed relationships with. And now because your title and responsibilities have changed, now the way they see you and your identity has changed and it is due in no part to your work. Yeah. That's gotta be that's gotta be tough. Yeah. I think I think that's I think you've probably hit the nail on at least one of the nail heads that are involved in this situation, right? Which is um and as I said, like it, it was jarring to me from June 30 to July one, and that's in the summer too. Right. You know, so it's not even like faculty are really around. I mean, and what I really felt it was in August as the school semester started back up again, 
because then I'm, then I'm identifiably in this new role and, um, and having to make decisions and do things that, um, that contribute to this vision of me as having power and, and, and I'm not saying I don't have power. I mean, department heads do have power like that. I'm not, I'm not trying to say, Oh, woe is me. Have pity on me. Um, I get it that, that I have some discretion. Um, but I was thinking the other day that I think, and I could be wrong about this, but my sense is that faculty have many more degrees of freedom than I now have as an apartment head. Like I, it, it, I can't stay home two days a week and write that, that isn't a thing I can do. And there are definitely faculty in my department that do that. Um, and that, that is not tenable for me. It is, it is impossible. And, um, and constraining my work in certain ways, um, is much more difficult now than it used to be. Like I, you know, saying I'm going to end at a certain point on a, a during the day, or I'm not going to work during some period of time, because things come up that are outside of the, whatever boundaries, arbitrary or otherwise, that I put up. That I don't have a cho- I have to deal with that thing because it's yeah. time dependent and it's happening now. So I either deal with it or it's going to be a disaster. Yeah, we're recording this during your winter break. Yeah, and you are making very difficult decisions during winter break. I am. It- and there are other people who are on winter break. They are and probably have been since maybe all of last week because last week was finals week and many of my faculty don't give final exams. So once they were done with their grading, they're probably done. So by you know Tuesday or Wednesday, in a typical year for me, Tuesday or Wednesday of the week of finals week, I'm pretty much done. Like I may be going to the college holiday party or something, but I'm not. I'm not stressing out about decisions that need to be made or anything like that. So yeah, it changed, it changes your life in a way that you don't get a choice about. Yeah. If you were an administrator or you were a leader, there's really no time off. Like I I think about like, you know, a university president or a provost Mm. or the president of some company, those folks are like my brother moved up through you know his company and was eventually like the like like a manager of like a plant and he was all he always had his phone he was always answering questions whether it was yeah. like saturday or you know in the evening or whenever mm-hmm. it it and he said to me once he's like that comes with the role this is yeah. your 24 hour access comes that's what they pay me for they pay me for that 24 hour access because i have to be ready to problem solve or put out a fire whenever it happens yeah yeah and i think that for me is is you know and i'm i'm still trying to figure out to your original question where i fit in this like if i've crossed the boundary into the actual them of being administration or whether i'm still in this liminal space and i'm sort of like a semi faculty member that also has leadership responsibilities i don't know it's unclear to me um how i'm viewed in that regard but certainly one of the ways that i am differentiated from for example my dean is i do not have i am not 24/7 it is rare uh, if not unheard of, really, for there to be an emergency on the level of like somebody's going to call me on a Saturday morning and say, I need a response in the next three hours or, you know, the world is coming to an end or some major catastrophe is going to happen. Right. Or some major catastrophe has happened and I have to respond to it like that is that is very rare. But I know that for Dean level people, that is much less rare. And for president yeah. level people, it is 
par for the course, as you said. Like yeah. I'm sure Neely Benaputi is responding to things constantly. Um, and that's part of being a president is, you know, you do get paid more and part of it is because you have to respond to everything. Um, so that is to me sounds exhausting and uninteresting, <laughs> but, but we need people to do that. So, um, yeah. Well, I, I think what we've done, we, what we've done right there is try to find those areas of the out group that we can, appreciate, respect, value, mm-hmm. you know, understand. And I think that comes from, you know, not to draw on Ted Lasso, but, but why not? To, but the, to be curious of our area. To be curious. Yeah. About the the role, the responsibilities of the other, the other group, the other leader, the whatever, and trying to suspend our judgment until we have more information. Like you're saying the the note card, like resist writing the note card until we have more information yeah. or n- not just have a note card, but maybe have like old page right. of like, okay, so what's all the things that this person has to do, all of the things that, th- that this person may have access to or information about that is guiding their decision-making that we may not have. Yeah. And sometimes that might be asking questions. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's giving grace and it's recognizing that, um, you don't have all the information. And so decisions that may seem to you capricious or not considering your needs may be considering needs that you're not aware of. And that, and that, um, in some cases you should be aware of. Right. But then, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good place yeah. to stop and transition into joys. Yes. Well, I hope I hope for you, you're in this in between space, right? Yeah. <laughs> to kind of bring back the, the like the name of the show. There you go. But I I hope that you get some clarity in 2024. And no, thanks. I mean, I don't some think joy. I will, but I appreciate you wanting it for <laughs> me, and I want it for myself too, and and for you. I mean, I think you're you're having similar. You're in similar situation. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't We're we don't need to spend any more time than today. Let's talk about joy. I I have a book recommendation. I texted this book recommendation to you, but I think it has lived in my head since I've read this book. Uh it is called Whale Fall. Yeah. It is a book that came out it was the in the fall. It was on a best new thrillers you know, article I read in the New York Times just a handful of weeks ago by Daniel Krauss, Whale Fall by mm-hmm. Daniel Krauss. Um, and it was a USA Today bestseller named a best book of 2023 by a bunch of different places. It is, I don't want to tell you too much about the book, but I'll, I'll say this. Uh, it, I'll give you this snippet, the snippet of the this this guy's uh he's a scuba diver or was a scuba diver mm-hmm. and he um is going to collect his father's remains from the ocean okay and the book is about a lot of stuff there's so much in this book but some of it is about fathers and sons which you know we are we are fathers and and we are sons mm-hmm. and so that part you know, definitely resonates with me. Uh, but then there's also this really interesting narrative 
um, device that they use because it's about scuba diving. Some of the book is told in flashbacks, and those chapters are named for the year in which they happened. So 2007. 2012 and it's all over the place so sometimes it goes back as far as like the 1960s and then so you have to keep track that way and i always like like authors who are requiring a lot of you as the reader i like that because they're saying i do i know i'm I'm confirming you do and because they're saying and i like it whenever uh, a director does that in a movie too it's like saying you need to pay attention here Mm -hmm. and so you pay attention yeah. So so there's those chapters, but then there's the other chapters that are told based on his time in the water. Hmm. And they're all labeled by how much air pressure is left in the tank. Mm. Nice. Cool. So it starts with 3000 PSIs. Mm-hmm. And then through the the writing of those times where he's in the water, there's all of this talk about like, how much air he needs to get back. And mm-hmm. so there's this l- learning. I was never, I've, I've never been a scuba diver. No. Um, never been, you know, even compelled to get my a scuba diver li- license or anything, but there was a lot to learn here that I, I mean, I've never knew any of this stuff. So, and there's a yeah. lot of science in it. There's a good chunk of science that at the end, I read the, Prologue, not prologue. The what's at the end? Not the prologue. The, the epilogue. Epilogue. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I read the epilogue only because I wanted to know how much science was, whether the science was accurate. Mm. And so yeah. at the end, uh, there's this very lengthy part where he talks about the scientists he talked to. Mm. Nice. Because he wanted to make yeah. sure that the ocean stuff, the biology stuff he talked about, was accurate. Mm. So cool. Whale fall. Whale fall. I read. I, I read it in like a day, day and a half. I just couldn't put it down. I've been recommending it to anyone who will listen. Yeah. Nice. Whale fall by Daniel awesome. Krauss. Yeah. Good. 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 I like yeah. those kinds of books that are like fiction, but are like hard sciencey or hard sci-fi as a as a brand. But this is not sci-fi. This is. Well, I I, I said I didn't want to give you away too okay. much. All right. Right. All right. So we'll All just right. leave so it there. Yeah. Leave it there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So mine um, is just from last night. My one of my daughters has returned from college and is here with us again, which is always nice when you get when you get the kids back in the house. Um, And last night we watched a movie together, and it it was uh, Rye Lane, which is on Hulu, Um, and it's it's set in in London basically London environment environs around there. Um, and, and it's a romantic comedy about two people who, you know, traditional sort of meet cute situation where, where they meet, um, at, at an art opening. And then it, it sort of unfolds from there and it mostly takes place in one day. There's, there's sort of, to your point, an epilogue, um, but uh but it's it's uh it's it's not a spectacular movie but it's a lovely movie and um and it's well, it's you got know, a 98% it's, rating on rotten tomatoes yeah that is not nothing it's not nothing so um so maybe it is a spectacular movie and i need to watch it again i mean i really enjoyed it i'm not trying to take anything away from it but you know and it has a little um it's 
got a little bit of surrealistic vibe to it. So sort of like everything everywhere all at once. It's not anywhere near that level of like multiverse sort of craziness that sure. is in that amazing movie. But it has some of that like what's going on here uh and i'm not oh. sure yeah it's it's in in a, in the best possible sense it's mostly about how it's filmed and and uh how i don't know how the events unfold but but it's uh i i uh i give it two thumbs up and we really enjoyed it and it's on hulu and so if you have hulu you've already paid for it so you can go enjoy it for no additional cost and uh if not, I don't know if it's rentable through some other service. I don't think so. so. I don't think so. But yeah, I'm looking at the, the ratings and stuff online. It is really well rated. Like yeah. it's got a 4.7 rating uh, on IMDb. Actually, 7.2 on IMDb. And one reviewer rates, it's a Wes Anderson style comedy, hmm. which is like they wrote that for me. Yeah, I'm like, I'm going to watch this now. <laughs> that's that's fair. That's got a little bit of that. It's it's definitely got that, like, in this in the way that Wes Anderson is very, um, got that sort of formalized sense of of nonsense. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like everything feels very, um, yeah, almost cartoonish in the best possible sense. But it's not sure. nearly that far. Like, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's not Budapest Hotel. I'll just say that it's, yeah. you know, which is a phenomenal movie, but also, you know, ha- has has Wes Anderson fingerprints vibes. All over yeah, it, yeah. Uh, it's like so so yeah. Wes Anderson. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's so, great. Yeah. I'll I'll put it on my uh, watch list. Yeah. You know, I'm been looking for some some movies to watch, and that's a that's a good recommendation. I I would say it's a good Christmas movie in the sense that it's you know it's a it's a happy movie that you you leave it feeling good. So that's, yeah. good. that's nice this time of year. Well, and this, this episode's going to drop in the new year. So this will yeah. be like maybe a, a New Year's movie for some there people. There you go. Or It'll be a New like Year's. Like start it. It would be a New Year's movie too. Yes. Sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, check out Rye Lane. Check out Whalefall. And yep. you know, we'll catch you next time. In between. See you then. Bye now.